Welcome to episode nine of Deep Natter. I'm Jeffrey Sidoris. And before we started recording, Sean and I were talking about a new project that he's going to be doing. It's a limited run project with one of his oldest friends. So in this episode, we're talking about podcasting, both from the side of the listener and also from the perspective of the producer. Plus, Sean shares a bit of the beauty and the complexity of his early life growing up in South Africa. Here we go. And I was trying to write down notes of what we were talking about, but for the life of me, I, I remember it was good, but I can't remember what we were talking about. Oh, okay. Well, I've, I've got it. Don't worry. Yeah, good. So good. Thank I you. I should start with a thank you. That's because that's where this came up. Was like um, lately for a couple of reasons. Well, the one is that I'm, I'm I'm starting a podcast, a limited series podcast with a friend of mine from South Africa, who I actually mentioned in the book. We've been friends for 20 years now. And uh, he was the guy in kind of my early 20s. We used to sit over a table from each other on Tuesday nights usually. And we were two, you know, very earnest young men who were just trying to find out how to be good people in the world. And so we kind of, uh, we were just, uh, we had like an open door policy. You could say anything, you could criticize anything because we knew where it was coming from. And we just tell each other what was going on and kind of hold each other accountable for, for the lives we were leading. And um, so our relationship goes way back to that. And we thought it would be quite nice to do like a, just like a, a 10 episode and it's done. Like, you know, the the, the British sitcom model right. um, of like <laughs> podcasts where we just, we just check in with each other after 20 years at kind of the midpoint of our lives and go like, what's been going on? Like, and, and uh, so that's been cool. But the reason I need to thank you is because... Um, I've realized how much I've actually picked up from you about podcasting. Mm. Um, and I mean, I've, I've done, I mean, we've been doing this for a little bit, but, and I've been on lots of other people's podcasts, but it's always up to them to drive it, you know? Mm-hmm. And I've mm-hmm. always struggled with, I'm, I'm somebody who's too prepared. I'm too careful with things. I want to know exactly where something's going before I start, you know, I'm very controlling about my own creative output. Um, and I always worried that, uh, I wouldn't have the kind of light touch to be able to let a conversation go where it needs to go because I'd be worried that it would just be waffle and it'd be a conversation that would bore people to death. And I realized, and it was particularly your latest conversation with Bill that did this for me um, because I listened to it slightly differently because we'd started doing these already and I also knew this thing with Doug might be coming up soon and was thinking about doing it myself. I, and I listened to you differently in that... Um, I always take a podcast in and I kind of, I kind of just enjoy being in that space, listening to people, two people have a conversation. Um, and, and I, you kind of surrender to it and just enjoy being in the middle of that. Like you're eavesdropping on two interesting people having a chat. Right, 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 right. When you and Bill were talking, I thought, okay, listen to what they're actually talking about. And the first 15 minutes, I think you talked about Mac computers, which I don't care about at all. And yet <laughs> I was in it. I was in it because I'm like, I'm like, I just like these two guys and I like listening right. to them. So I, I, wherever they want to go, it's fine. And as long as they take together, it's fine. And I realize as a listener, I have a lot more patience than I do on myself as a creative person trying to generate that kind of thing. Right. And that, that, uh, like you do that so effortlessly and you trust the process. I've said to you a bunch of times already doing these, like, are you sure, are you sure people want to listen to this? It's like, are you sure? Like, are you sure? Like, you know, us just kind of chatting about stuff is interesting to people. 
but we keep getting good feedback and you've just trusted the process because obviously you've been doing this for a long time now, so you know. Um, and I've learned a lot from that. Oh, thank you. And the hmm. other thing I've and the other thing I've learned from you while I'm um, drowning you in praise is... Oh, come on, because it's not uncomfortable at all. No, no, no. I just got to milk it. See how, <laughs> see how much I can get you to call on your How desk. long does it take, Jeffrey, before his head just yeah, pops yeah, yeah, right exactly. on air? <laughs> the other thing, and I think you take this for granted with yourself, is that is that what I've realized, it, it is obvious, but you don't realize how important it is until you start doing it yourself, is what a masterful interview you are, but in a way that... It, it, it doesn't feel like you had to work on it or it's a massive effort. You are just incredibly naturally curious. And this mm. is what I said to you earlier. I said, what's interesting in, in conversations, and I've, I've been on the other end of podcasts where you'll sit with somebody and they'll start talking to you, but you can tell they've got their list of 20 questions they need to get out and they've got to do it in an hour. So they've tried to carve up the time so we get three minutes right. and answer. And and you can tell they'll... Whether you've finished or not. Absolutely. They will cut yeah. you off because they need to get through their list. And those those podcasts are not good. In fact, I was on one particular podcast. I won't say the name, but but he asked me about um, growing up in Africa. And I started talking about it. And at some point I got to the stage where I said, uh, you know, but growing up in Africa is quite tricky. It's quite complicated. Um, and, and he cut me off and went, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, and, uh, what sort of camera do you use? You know, and we've moved on because he's got his list to get through. <laughs> and the number of people in the comments who went, why on earth did you cut him off there? He had more to say, and I really wanted to hear that. And I know why he cut me off because he's got a photography podcast and that's what he wants to talk about. Right. But you would ne- you don't let that stuff happen. In fact, I've, I've heard you in Process Driven allow a conversation to go down a massive rabbit hole because you have a question that you know we're all asking and you'll follow it. Nothing will put you off following that. You'll, you'll burn your list of questions, loose questions that you have. I don't know how you, it'd be interested to know how you actually do it. Do you have a list? Is it very loose? I typically don't. I, I do a lot of research. I do a lot of research. I love researching people. I love listening to previous interviews that you've done, reading things about you. If you've got a book, I'll read it. If you've got you know work, I'll look at it. I love that part. But it for me, it's it's counterproductive to go in with a list of questions. I may have ideas of where I'd like to go, but if I approach somebody to talk to them, I don't care what we talk about. I'm a fan. Mm. You know, there's something about you that I've found interesting and, and my job, and this is what I think a lot of podcasters don't realize your job is not to ask questions. Mm. Your job is to make space for answers. That's your job. Your job is to create a space where that person that you're in, if you're doing kind of an interview back and forth type of podcast, not all podcasts I'm talking, but, but the type of show like that process driven is my job is to create a space where who I'm talking to feels heard feels seen, feels comfortable enough to talk about what interests them and know that I'm going to be interested in that. That's my job. And I've said this to you before, but it's, it's, you're, you're like perfectly wired as a personality for this because it's so innate that, you know, we walked around Paris for four days and you, <laughs> right. you did, you did impromptu podcast. <laughs> Didn't take any photos. Was, no, no, no. <laughs> but you, you, you did impromptu podcast with people who are trying to serve you coffee because you're just interested right. in people. So they'll say something and you'll want to know more. And before they know it, they're in a, a conversation with you because you're naturally curious, which I think makes you a, a veritable ninja at what you do. It's, Thank it's, you. And y- you know what it's partially a response to, I think, is the stuff that we talked about a few episodes ago of being 
on the other side of that, being so self-centered and so arrogant and not realizing how interesting other people were and are because I was so interested in myself. And I think that in, in the pendulum swinging the other direction, one of the, one of the unseen benefits of that is I've become massively interested in other people. I've become massively interested in what drives people and, and their stories and what they love, what they hate, what they fear, you know, all of these things. It's fascinating to me. And I think in, in, in no, in no sort of, you know, uncertain terms, I'm, I'm learning more about me by learning more about somebody that I'm talking to. Hmm. And I, I think it's, it's just a, you know, it's a, it's a byproduct of me going in a different direction and it's, and thank you for saying all that. I really appreciate it. It's something that I, that I try to do. I try to be attentive. And I think, um, I mean, if I'm being honest, Adrian has, has said several times that I'm better with a mic in front of me. I'm a better listener when there's a mic in front of me. And that if, if I could learn to treat conversations off mic more like they are on mic, that would be a good thing. Hmm. Well, that's and interesting. Yeah. 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 Something else you said earlier when we were talking was because no one who listens to your podcasts would think you are unsure of yourself in the slightest, but you said oh God, how I'm, nervous I'm you terrified. were. Which, yeah. is, which is incredible how you hide that. <laughs> and and yeah. on top of that, how if that's true, you you have the courage to follow a conversation wherever it might lead and not try and keep it on the, the more controllable, predictable, straight and narrow of whatever topic you've chosen. Like, right. I, I don't know. I don't know how to kind of marry up what you say is an insecurity, but what looks like supreme confidence and, and courage to just follow stuff wherever it needs to go. It's interesting to me. It, no, it is. It's, it's, I mean, even these, I get nervous doing these and I, you know, you're one of my best friends in the world and I get nervous doing these every single time. Um, and people mm. that I don't know or that I've spoken to, it's one of the reasons that I do that, that pre-call with, with people yes. is so that I'm not coming in, I'm not coming in cold exactly. I mean, we've had a conversation beforehand and it's me, it, it, uh, it does two things. It, 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 it allows a person to see kind of what I'm about, but it also allows me to kind of see what their energy level is and how they speak and what their cadence is. Oh. And if if somebody speaks really quickly and, and, and they're really excited and they want to talk about it, like, and I'm like, okay, so tell me what it was like, you know, that's not going to match up. Yeah. That's not going to mesh. They're going to feel uncomfortable because they're going to feel like I'm not at their level and I'm going to be uncomfortable because I don't feel like I'm moving. So it's, it's a chance to sort of, um, see what the cadence and what the energy is so I can either come up or come down so that they feel comfortable. So, like so that they feel, yeah, yeah. It's, it's that sort of matching and mirroring so that, so that whoever I'm talking to feels, and it's not, it's not me pretending. I mean, I, I, no. I am, I, I am genuine, genuinely excited and, and appreciative and grateful to have the conversation. But psychologically, if, if you are closer to that person in, in energy level, they are going to feel more comfortable. And again, that's, that's part of my job is making sure that whoever I'm talking to feels heard, feels seen and feels comfortable enough to share their stories with me. You know, it's a, it's a privilege for me to hear this stuff and to share it with an audience. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm, yeah, I'm a wreck before I do them. 
(laughs) (laughs) And the interesting thing to me is because I've been on one of those pre-interview. I think we first spoke back in like 2016, maybe something like that, 15 or 16. Yeah. yeah. And I think when, when we, we had that first pre-call and I thought, well, this was just a podcast on its own. Right. I mean, I think, I think most of your pre-calls. A lot of them can be. Yeah. A lot. And I record a lot of them just in case I record a lot of them just for reference. I think I record most of them now for reference so that I don't have to, I don't have to go out of the conversation to take a note and miss something that someone says Mm. right after that. I can just be present in the conversation, go back and listen to it, make notes from that and, and go ahead with it. Um, and I find that for me, that that's what works for me. A lot of people don't do it and that's great. What, you know, you got to find what works for you. But for me, having that initial icebreaker of a conversation, and sometimes they're very short, sometimes they're five or 10 minutes. Often they are longer. Um, because you just get into a groove with someone and you, and you, it's fun to talk to people. I mean, it's, it's, it's wonderful to take an interest in somebody and hear what lights them up or what, you know, makes them afraid or, or whatever it is. It, it is for you, but I think yeah. you take for granted, you think everyone has that. And I don't think everyone does. Like, I think it's, mm. it's, it's what makes you good at what you do. And like you say, it's kind of, in your case, you say it's, it's kind of making the best of a pendulum swing, but I would, I would imagine that on some level, that's always been a part of you. It's always, in I mean, there, it, isn't it? it? It has been, you know, I mean, even in high school, I mean, I would, I, yeah, I mean, I've told you that story of, you know, writing to the jet propulsion laboratory, asking if I could interview Carl Sagan. Yeah. yeah. And, and they went, uh, no, <laughs> no you can't. We've already taken this Neil deGrasse Tyson kid on. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, there, there's always been some sort of, of interest. And I, I think, you know, having interesting grandparents and interesting, you know, friends of my dad's and mom's and just having people around that, that were, that were odd to me or interesting to me. And I would overhear things and, and, you know, wonder to myself, why is, you know, why is this person like this? Or why, why are they doing that? Or why? And it just, I don't know. I don't know where it came from, to be honest with you, but I'm grateful for it. I'm, I'm grateful that I can, that I can turn it into something that is interesting to other people and gives us a little more insight into other people. And, and, you know, how great is this that I get to talk to people that I find interesting, that I find, you know, I get to approach people and, and say, hey, I, I really like what you've done here, or I'm really fascinated, or I'm confused by what you've done here. Can we talk about it? And, you know, there have only been, boy, only a couple people that have said no, thankfully. Not yeah, but you, you've had, you've had your, some of your heroes on your show. Yeah, a couple. Yeah. Been, and been very complimentary afterwards. And really yeah, enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's been really, I've been really lucky and, and I'm, I'm grateful for it. But so um, do you have, um, do you have like people who you've watched their interview techniques over the years and you've taken stuff from them? Who are your guys? Uh, I really like Charlie Rose. Uh, on PBS here. Uh, he, he's done some really terrific interviews. Um, I like George Strombolopoulos, uh, on CBC. Um, he's, he's a Canadian guy. He had this, this show. He would have people over to his house and, and interview them over his kitchen table, you know, and he had, you know, Sting and the Beastie Boys and like just, you know, this who's who of, of music. And he would have them over to his house and have these really honest, just unproduced 
conversations and he would roll tape on them. And I love that. Um, there's a, a director called John Favreau. Do you know John Favreau? Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. Um, he did a show uh, called Dinner for Five. Yep. And it was, I think it was on AMC. I don't remember what channel it was on, but he would get four of his friends and they would go to a restaurant and they would set up three cameras and just roll tape and see where the conversations went. And, you know, sometimes he was part of the conversation. Sometimes he would just listen and conversations would form between the guests and, and then somebody else would chime in when they felt comfortable enough to, to say something. And, and I think if you, if you look at that show while, while, you know, ostensibly it's his show, it's also this masterclass in creating space. Because he doesn't have to be part of the conversation. He can, he can just say, look, my job is to bring you guys together. Now go. Hmm. Hmm. And if I can chime in, I will, but I don't have to. He, there, was no, there was no like, okay, I'm hosting this, so what's next? You know, there, there was none of that. It was just creating this space for people to, to have a conversation. Yeah. Um, there's another Canadian guy who um, had some stuff go on in his personal life and turns out he wasn't wasn't such a great guy personally but i think he was a terrific interviewer a guy named gian gomeshi um also on the cbc um but a terrific interviewer a terrific um fan of the material and and had a a lot of really great insights in in how he would talk to people um but again you know personal life aside um you know i'm not condoning what he was accused of doing at all, but yeah, people, as it, people do good and bad things. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, I, I don't think you, you have to wipe out no. everything good that someone did. No, I, I don't buy that, but, um, yeah, I mean, it's just, I think those are some of the, you know, anybody who's good, you know, I pick up things from, from Ibarri and X. I pick up things from, you know, from, um, Dax Shepard on armchair expert. I pick up things from, you know, all sorts of people. Um, Studs Turkle. Studs Turkle. Oh yes. How could I forget? I'm sorry. Studs Turkle. Yeah. Studs did. Um, he was a a broadcaster, um, who did a, a, this, this massive project called working, uh, and starting in the 1940s, he recorded conversations with people about what they do and, and why they do it. And, and, you know, he interviewed lawyers and waitresses and, you know, plumbers and, anybody who would sit down with him. And I think the count, somebody may correct me on this, but I think the count was over 5,000 interviews. And this was, you know, lugging around a reel to reel recorder, you know, back in the forties and fifties. Um, but yeah, masterful recording. And he would start out some of his recordings and he had this, had this kind of nasally voice and he would talk like, kind of like this. And he would, he would describe the uh, we're sitting here in the, the uh, foyer and uh, let's say uh, damask wallpaper here. And, uh, you know, they would just, they would set the scene and describe kind of the room that you were in. So you, 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 you felt sort of pulled into some of these conversations. Yeah. And if you, if you go to the Studs Turkle archive, there is an incredible amount of wonderful, wonderful conversation. Um, civil rights activists, politi- political activists, um, musicians, actors, authors, I mean, just anybody and everybody who, who would sit down with him for a conversation. Um, and he, yeah, and he was, he was kind of the inspiration for this, you know, at least partially for this massive project that I wanted to do, which yeah. now that the world has decided to fall apart yet again, 
is going to be put on hold again. Um, but I do hope to, to get out there and continue that work and, and see what has changed in 50 odd years since that project stopped. How do we, you know, I'd, I'd like to ask those questions again and, and, and go further and, and ask people, you know, what they get from their work, what they bring to it, what they expect out of it and, and get away from the more traditionally sort of creative quote unquote people and, and talk to other people. Because I think there's, there's a, there's a weird hierarchy that, that we kind of make the assumption that because people are creative air quotes in a certain way that they're somehow more interesting. And, and I don't think that that's true. Uh, so I'd, I'd like to kind of get away from, from exclusively talking to people who are creative and, mo- and most of the people I talk to are, are visual arts and so, uh, of some kind and, and go down a different road and, and, you know, sort of uncover some of those stories and, and, uh, see where that leads. You're the guy to do it, ma'am. I mean, it's, it's Thank your, you. your interest Thank you. in blue collar workers anyway, um, combined with your skill as an interviewer, combined with your, with your knowledge of what's gone before. I mean, there's just no one better to do it. Ah, uh, thank you. I but appreciate that. You need a roadcaster, so I know, I know. Hey, would <laughs> would you mind? Um, would you mind talking a little bit about? Like, you you can't you can't leave that open ended thing for me, and I, I I have to at least ask. Would you mind talking about how how what you meant by growing up in Africa was tricky? <laughs> so basically, what you've done is you picked up what someone else left out in an interview, and you brought it in because you can't help. Well, because we haven't we haven't talked about this. We haven't ever. I haven't really ever talked to you about. I mean, we've talked about the church, but yeah, yeah. Tricky yeah. is a very specific word. Is it is it tricky because you're you know a tall, lanky white guy, or like how how was it tricky? What was tricky about it? It does come down to that. I'll be honest. Really? Really? Yeah, it's, it's the thing is, I mean, I grew up, I grew up in Zimbabwe, Botswana, Lesotho, Swaziland, and uh, South Africa at the end. Um, Can I just tell you as, as a, as a person who's never been to Africa, that sounds so exotic. I mean, I mean, a, a couple of those countries, Botswana in particular is what you think of when you think African bushveld. It's beautiful. Mm. Um, it's, uh. I mean, we did live in a um, place. So when we first moved over to Botswana, actually, um, I, uh, we, we moved because my mom just missed Africa. So I was only about nine years old at the time. My brother would have been about five or six. Mm-hmm. She just missed Africa. We didn't have a lot of money or anything. She just wanted to go back. And so when we first moved over, we moved to a little mining town called Salibi Pikwi, which is um, just near the border with Zimbabwe. And uh, we lived in a tin shack for nine months. Wow. She was just so desperate to be there. She missed Africa so much. So she, she took us over and she eventually and got a job. When you say tin shack, literally like the corrugated. Yeah. Corrugated tin, iron, yeah. like okay. uh, walls, ceiling, everything. So wow. when, when you get those big African rainstorms with hailstones the size of golf balls, you heard it. Yeah. <laughs> like I bet. It, wow. You could hear nothing else. Like no insulation, like no, nothing. It was just, it was just tin walls all the way. Wow. And it's the three up. of you in, in this, this yeah. shack. Wow. Yeah on concrete foundation. And oh, that was, wow. that was it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, and it was raw concrete, so we'd have to throw rugs down on top of that as well. Like that's what we moved to. And we were in that for a good, almost a year and then moved into a place because my mom started cooking for a local restaurant hotel. So she, we moved into the hotel while she kind of did that job. Hmm. Um, yeah. And it was, it was kind of that romantic idea of like, we, you know, uh, in fact, the opening of 
my book is that it's in, yeah. it's in Botswana. It was going out. We used to go out with another family in their Land Rover on Saturday evenings. We used to drive into the bush. Just, you know, there's no roads. You just drive uh, off-road as far as you can go, somewhere interesting. And you would uh, sit up camp and have sundowners and the kids would have uh, cool drinks and go running around in the bush. And we had, you know, we had, it, it, it is like what you think of when you think of Africa. We had uh, baboons and leopards and things wow. coming through our garden and often fighting in the, in the, in the copies outside the back, which are like little rocky hills. So yeah, it was, it was all that. But the thing about, the thing about Africa, it wasn't so much, it wasn't as much Zimbabwe, although I left when I was quite young. Botswana, Botswana is not as much. Uh, Lesotho, Swaziland, saw their own thing. But South Africa, in particular, I mean, I moved. I went to South Africa before my family, in a way, because I was sent to boarding school there. So mm-hmm. that would have been ninety-two to ninety-five would have been my high schooling years, and ninety-two was the year that Nelson Mandela was released from jail. And 94 was the year he was made president. So we were there at a very transitional time. Um, I I didn't live in South Africa during the apartheid years. I kind of came in as everything was changing for the better. Um, How was that? Were were you welcomed in or was it it difficult to come in even, even though it was changing? Well, the thing is, is because it, because it was the old apartheid regime still, the, the, the power structures were still in favor of the white minority when I right. came in. So there was right. no welcome or not welcome. I mean, I went to a, a fairly, um, a fairly affluent high school in South Africa. Hmm. Um, and, but there was a lot of paranoia. So while all this was going on, I, I remember things like, um, we had, uh, where, where the high school was over the hill, there was a, a an informal settlement, what they call a, 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 a squatter camp, basically like tin shacks, the works, mm-hmm. like quite a poor community. And I remember the school being very worried that, uh, when, when the ANC took power, that black people across the country would rise up and kill all white people. That was the level of paranoia. Wow. So they installed uh, razor wire all around the school mm. and they posted guards who would walk up and down the fences to protect us because they were worried that they would, that people would come in and kill all the students wow. and us sitting awake at night, we would sit awake at night and there was often the, the, the settlement over the hill was called Bruntville. And there was often, we, we knew the army would have to go in regularly to put down, um, like issues that were going on and the army would have to go in and you'd hear gunfire. So you'd, you would be a little worried because you're watching these adults around you. I'm, I'm what, 13 years old watching all these adults around me kind of panicking, thinking we're all going to get murdered. So there was, you pick up on that paranoia, I think, um, early on. Um, and you, what rescued me, I think from, because my, my family have always, Oh, it's bad to say, but it's the truth. Is uh, my family have always been uh, little colonialists. I mean, I mm. think they 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 they've had that mindset, which I had to break out of as well. And what rescued me was actually going um, on that gap year after high school, where um, we travelled around South Africa as part of this church group that visited uh, all sorts of churches. You know, all all different um, races, all different uh, economic groups. And that just broke everything down because the nicest mm. people I met were were the poorest people. The nicest people I met were African people, not not uh, expats who were living in South Africa. Right. So that thankfully that exposure saved me from sinking into that mindset at all. Like at a, I would have been about seventeen then, I think. Wow. Um, but but there was always, 
um, being in South Africa, I had the opportunities I had partly because I was white and, and, mm. and because there's the residue of apartheid in South Africa. So, so I, I mean, by the end, I, I had to come back to the UK because I couldn't get any work there because after 20 years of the ANC being in power, they were still struggling to change the economy of the country right. um, and, and, and make it more balanced. So they had to institute like heavy um, black empowerment, black economic uh, empowerment policies. So they would give companies tax breaks for not hiring white people. So even though like I'd gone to university and got a degree, um, I walked into interviews where I was told like, oh, sorry, no, you're going to have to let yourself out. No one, wow, uh, really? no one hires 30 year old white people. That doesn't happen. Wow. So you have to let yourself out. And they would definitely hire somebody who hadn't even been to high school, but that's exactly what they needed to do. And I understand that because, mm-hmm. because that guy who only, who only got like a few years of schooling didn't only get a few years of schooling because he's, he's stupid or lazy. He did it because he wasn't allowed to go right, to university. Right, right, right. So how do you redress the balance in the country if you don't hire people who are quote unquote less qualified, because if you don't give him the job, he's not going to get enough money to send his kids to university and right. school and decent right. it never changes. So it stays yeah. the same forever. Yeah. So you have to break the cycle. And unfortunately for me at the time, the cycle had to be broken with my generation. And I was lucky because I could just come back to the UK because I was born here and, and get work here. But I've got lots of friends back there who are, who are, who can't get work. Um, and, and they are on the bottom of the pecking order. Yes. You know, I mean, you could say it's justice because black people are at the bottom of the pecking order in a horrible way during apartheid. But I mean, you know, you don't want that to be the case on either end, obviously. Right. And it just makes it, I, you know what? I remember coming back to the UK 2012 and I've been back about a month and I had this experience. I was walking around on the streets and I was, I'd just gotten this job and, you know, I was feeling good about the fact that I had a bit of financial stability and I suddenly thought, I don't feel guilty. And I hadn't realized how much guilt I was carrying around. I mean, I, I made no money in South Africa. The highest paying job I had is, is not enough to even live on a base salary here or like a, ba- like a very low living standard here. But, but I felt guilty for that because I felt like I had that because of advantages that I was getting because of the, the leftover residue of apartheid, right, even right, right, right. No, no direct part in it. So there was always guilt. There was always guilt that I knew that still most of the wealth in South Africa resided in the hands of white people and that not enough had changed that, that, that I was powerless individually to do very much about it. Um, and yeah, it's, it just made it incredibly complicated how old, how old were you when you started to recognize that guilt? Would, would this have been high school with, with the, the razor wire or what, would it have been before then? No, that was, that was a confusing time. It was more afterwards, if I'm honest. I think after I joined the church and, you know, because the work that I was doing in the church was to do with poverty and outreach and trying mm-hmm. to sort of help people. I think immediately then you, you realize, you know, I mean, I, I remember doing soup kitchens right, um, and and, uh, you know, sitting and talking to people, um, like on the pavement, uh, just, you know, in, in the, in, in the poorest parts of town and, you know, spending a few hours there talking to somebody and trying to help them get an ID book or so they can get work and all this kind of stuff and giving them soup. But just thinking like, I'm no hero. Cause I get to stand up and go home after this. And I've got a flat I can go to and I can afford the rent on it. You know, I'm not, I'm no hero. Like this is a very, very complicated country that has a long way to go. I mean, you've heard about everything that's kicked off recently, I assume in the news that they've yeah, been yeah, yeah. 
huge uh, riots. And those riots, you know, on the surface are about politics, but they're absolutely not. They're mm-hmm. about the fact that, that that country still has, I mean, they have a they have a 70% unemployment rate for people under 25. Mm. I mean, how, how, where do you even, yeah, where do you even begin for that? 40, 40% unemployment rate overall. Yeah. I mean, the, the amount of poverty and suffering that people are undergoing and the, the corruption in the current governments that mean it's not being made better the way that it, it should or could be. Of course, there's a lot of anger. And that anger is, of course, directed towards white people because it's easy, even, even though they might not be you know, in power, quote unquote, now they still have the benefits of apartheid resting with them because not enough has changed. So it's, it's just a very complicated. It sounds it. Yeah. It sounds like there, there is so much nuance there that, that you really have to have gone through it to understand it. Yeah. And it, it just is, you know, the, the, the overwhelming thing you feel as well is powerless, you know, and it's uh, it's one of those things. You you can do a lot, but you'll always you'll always be seen as part of the problem. And I actually felt I felt good about coming back to the UK. Um, I don't say this to a lot of my South African friends, but I felt good coming back because I felt like if I can come back, I should. And that might be me just being silly with myself, but I just felt I shouldn't take up resources and space here. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like you can do more? from where you are in terms of, of raising awareness and talking about it than you could have had you stayed? I don't talk about it because I just don't feel mm. I have a right to talk about it. I, mm. I, I am a privileged, relatively wealthy white guy compared to what's going on there. So I don't, I don't talk about it as if I know anything. Um, but I do, I do my little bit. So coming back here, I make money and then send it back to South Africa to people who I know are working in charities that are doing good work. That's the little bit I feel I can do, but I'm not about to stand on a soapbox and start suggesting solutions because I have no idea, Mm -hmm. no idea. Have you ever considered uh, some sort of project that may shine a light on, on what's going on there? Have you ever thought about going back and doing something um, almost as a humanitarian project? Well, yes, but I, I wouldn't want to helm it. This is the other thing. I would never go back to South Africa and try and do something that I'm, uh, that, that I'm directing or speaking about because I don't feel I should be in the driver's seat with something like that. But I did have a friend of mine get hold of me um, who's a, a, a Kosa guy, and he said to me, um, like, hey, um, I want to do this film, which which actually happened in different forms. I didn't get, end up getting involved, but I thought it was a lovely idea. He actually did a film uh, where he went into a local township, um, which is just on the border of a game reserve in South Africa, and did interviews with both the people who go over the fence and poach wildlife and kill rhinos and whatever to to... to to try and make a bit of money to feed their families and the guards who try and protect the wildlife who both come from the same township. Wow. Yeah. Which is fascinating stuff. Yeah. Like, that seems it, to be a hugely complicated relationship. Massively. Yeah. Massively complicated. And again, you know, it's very, very easy to sit in the West and go, well, that's, that's evil. That's evil people who, who do bad things and kill animals. And of course, right, like, right. they're just making ashtrays to make a buck or something. Exactly. But yeah. when you get in there, you realize I I might still think it's a terrible thing to shoot a rhino and I do, but it's a lot more complicated than you can imagine. Mm. And to sit and sort of draw a quick conclusion and say, those are the bad guys. It's a lot more complicated than that. And it's 
difficult, you know. Is is there a solution? I mean, can can you say that 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 there is a political solution or there's an economic solution or I mean, and I don't I don't want to suggest that there's not a solution, but there there has to be a willingness to find one. And it doesn't sound like there's enough of a willingness to really commit the resources necessary. You know, my, my, uh, a good friend of mine, we used to do youth camps together in Johannesburg, was actually the leader of the opposition party in South Africa for, for um, a few years. Uh, the DA, his name was uh, Musi Maimane. And he, um, an amazing guy, like an, an amazing guy. And because I know him personally, I could say that. He's not just, he doesn't just talk a good game. He's that guy. And he challenged that ANC government hard. Um, they, they used to hate him because like, he his his speeches were so good they always got replayed on the news and theirs didn't mm. um like they used to call him yeah mr tv that's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this guy mr tv so he was amazing and he really pushed he really pushed hard um uh but again like the problem in south africa is the anc government will always be voted in because it's the party of nelson mandela Hmm. And it's the Freedom Party. So mm-hmm, the, the, mm-hmm. The, the, most of the population will always just vote for the ANC. They get like 60% of the vote every time, 60 to 70% of the vote every time. Um, but it's not the party of Nelson Mandela anymore. And the, the previous president, Jacob Zuma, they reckon stole $35 billion from the country Holy during his cow. time. Um, in in wow. collaboration with a, with a family called the Guptas, who are um, a, a business family there. And like, when 35 at, billion dollars wow it's insane over over i don't know what it was 8 12 years something like that um, which is what everything kicking off at the moment is about on the surface is that he's been arrested and then mm-hmm. trying to try mm-hmm. and um but again the the people who are defending him are the are the poorest people and yet he's stolen that money directly from them um, but they still feel th- some sort of allegiance because it's the ANC, it's because Nelson it's the party, the party of freedom. Like, mm-hmm. how do you how do you extricate the two? And and yeah, it just makes it so incredibly complicated, you know. Wow. Um, yeah, I, I mean, what's the solution? I if if there was, I think it's integrity in the leadership. If there was a leadership in that country that really cared about the people from the bottom up, and there the, the corruption could be stemmed. I think that's where it starts. Um, because the will is there in the people. I mean, South Africa's are, are, are a beautiful people. Like they are, I've never experienced community like I've experienced in South Africa. We're, we're mm. a bunch of like closed off, repressed individualists in this country. And I think probably <laughs> to some extent in the States as well, but like to some extent, <laughs> yeah, I mean, to, South Africans, yeah. South Africans, Zimbabweans, Botswanans, like they are so welcoming and, mm. and friendly and community driven like it's 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 it, it, in south africa the word is ubuntu like ubuntu is the sense of community and people like that's what it's about and and if you just had that leadership at the top that wasn't just siphoning money out of it and you got that ubuntu sense to the top in the leadership that cared about the people at the bottom and up then things would change i think but i mean how do you get there you know right right how yeah do you get there wow Thank Sorry. you. Massive no. tangent. <laughs> See what you missed out on, podcast guy? <laughs> Who we will not name. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> Jeffrey got it. <laughs> I mean, how do you leave that on the table? That's that's massively interesting. Well, because you... I would have taken 20 minutes of his podcast when he wanted to talk about photography. And he, would have, he wouldn't have known what to do with it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, 
Yeah. No, that's great. Thank you for, uh, for sharing that. Yeah, no worries. Yeah. We haven't talked about that. I mean, we've talked about so many things, but we haven't really, we haven't really gone into that so much. I can't believe that's a, a tin shack with a concrete floor. That's amazing to me. That had to give you a different perspective when you became part of the church because you had, you had lived in, in a similar circumstance to the people that you were reaching out to. Yeah. I mean, although I would never say that because obviously people who did, who did live, um, in, in far worse conditions than I lived, I mean, sure. it was a very simple rustic little thing, but it's, I mean, when you, when you're talking about, um, tin shacks in, in South Africa, you're often talking about no floor mm. and just, uh, corrugated iron sort of leaned up against each other. It's not riveted together or anything. Mm-hmm. It leaks. Mm-hmm. And like I've seen, like that's, that's what people actually have to deal with. This was just a very, very simple little town that was, that was, we were on the poorer part of, but it was, you know, we still had food and we still went to the shops and we still, you know, had little things that we had, we had a car, you know, things like that. We, we weren't, we weren't completely destitute or anything. We were just right. struggling a bit. But I would imagine it did give you a different perspective than had you started out at the hotel. Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, uh, uh, in, in my upbringing, like I had, there were times of like real scarcity, like when my mom was trying to be a single mom moving back to Africa. And then, you know, when she remarried, she remarried a bank manager who, you know, we kind of had everything paid for, for a while. And then, Mm. and then he was made redundant. And then we were, they tried to start a hotel and that kind of fell apart. And then there was no money. And then, you know, I went off to be a pastor and as you can imagine, there was definitely no money there. I was splitting, (laughs) nobody goes in that for the money between multiple meals. (laughs) So it was, you know, it was, it was rough times, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm really grateful for those looking back now because I didn't die and they were a bit of a struggle sometimes, but, but, oh, thank goodness I have that perspective because I don't feel entitled to everything I have now. Yeah. You know, yeah, I the know character it all... that it has instilled in you is, is, it can't be understated. Yeah. And, and I'm grateful for everything. In fact, I feel guilty for what I have, which is the other mm. end of the problem, but it just means I don't feel I'm owed anything I have. And if I lost it, I'd make a plan, you know, right. that's the thing. And, and I, I like that kind of. I don't know, what would you call it? Adaptability, I mm-hmm, suppose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like having that. Yeah. It's a malleability. You, you, you're not, you're not so rigid that, that your life has to look one way or the other. You're able to go, okay, what, what's next and, and be okay with what's next. Yeah, I mean, even moving back to this country, I, 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 I sold my, my crappy car and I had a tiny bit of money and I, I put everything in two suitcases. Well, a suitcase and a backpack actually, and just got on a plane and came over and just hoped I'd make it work and stay with my godfather in London for a good year, slowly sort of getting back on my feet and building things up until I could move out and afford deposit on a rent. Like, and that's not long ago. That's 2012. Right. You know? Yeah. No, so, your, your willingness to leap is massively inspirational to me. You and I have talked about this many times. <laughs> I, I, I make choices and live vicariously through your willingness to just leap without knowing where you're going to land. Cause I, I yet, can't do that. And yet you've done the same Ugh. moving from the West coast was a but, big but, leap for you. Yes. But there was a place to land. Right. Right. Yeah. I didn't know how it was going to work out, but there, there was a place to land and, yeah, and, and you have repeatedly been able to put your trust in something beyond yourself and just leap. And I find that remarkably inspiring. Oh, I'll take it. That's sweet. Thank you. Thank you. 
subscribe to Jeffrey Sidoris Everything in your favorite podcast app to get Deep Natter along with Process Driven and everything else I release all in one feed. If you'd like to support the show and help others find it, you can leave a review or a rating wherever you listen and share it on social media. And as a reminder, you can listen to the show live and be a part of the conversation Tuesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern on Clubhouse. Connect with Sean on Twitter and Instagram at Sean Tuck. That's S-E-A-N-T-U-C-K. On his website at seantucker.photography or by searching for Sean Tucker on YouTube. You can connect with me on Twitter and Instagram at Jeffrey Sidoris. That's J-E-F-F-E-R-Y-S-A-D-D-O-R-I-S or on my website at jeffreysidoris.com. As always, thank you very much for listening. We appreciate you being here. We appreciate you sharing your time with us. And we hope you'll come back for the next one. Thank you.